The saying used to be, as goes the church, so goes the culture. I'm afraid that that is far from true now and has been for some time. Today it seems to be, as goes the culture, so goes the church. I can't believe I have to answer this question, but as the church has syncretized with the culture, questions like, can a Christian be pro-choice? have become fairly common. In fact, many of you ask me this question regularly on social media. So we're going to answer this question and refute, destroy, and bankrupt the theological case for abortion. All that and more. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in today. If you have been enjoying Unaborted or you're just tuning in now and you're excited to listen, please give us a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. So what is the question? The question we're going to examine today is, can a Christian be pro-choice? But really what the question is, is can one one be born again and hold a pro-choice position? And I get this question a lot. You've probably wondered this. Um, Maybe you have been asked this. And I think Generally speaking, the answer is yes, but not permanently. Could someone be born again? Could they be a Christian and still hold a pro-choice position? Yeah, sure. Yeah, people people after they come to Christ hold all sorts of bad ideas still. That's, that's what discipleship is, right? You're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we began to abandon certain lifestyles, choices, sometimes friendships, locations we go, and ideologies, ideas, beliefs that we have. Those things begin to be abandoned as we are transformed by the Holy Spirit. So yes, generally speaking, someone could be a Christian, actually be born again and hold a pro-choice position, but not permanently, not permanently. And scripture obviously speaks very strongly to this question, right? Can you be a child of God? Can you be a son of God and yet live in all of these ways, believe all of these things? Scripture speaks very strongly to that question, and the answer is no. You can't continue in that lifestyle. John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will lead you into all truth. 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And John 8, 31 through 32 says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, right? So there's this very strong sense that as we walk with Christ, as we're discipled, as we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, our lifestyle, what we preach, what we believe ought to align itself with the word of God, ought to align itself with the teachings of Jesus, right? With the way of Christ, uh, I, and, and I have an example of this, a good friend from uh, college that I went to college with. When uh, we were friends, the first couple of years of college, she was pro-choice. And it wasn't until um, we started having deeper conversations about the issue that she be- became aware of what an evil position the pro-choice position was. And she came to one of my talks on campus and immediately changed her mind because the truth was plain to her, right? Her, her eyes had been enlightened by Christ. When the spirit of truth comes, he will lead you into all truth. And when she encountered the truth, she recognized it for the truth and what she was believing as a lie and abandoned it. So sure, 
Someone can be a Christian and pro-choice, but not permanently. There needs to be change. But when someone asks you the question, can a Christian be pro-choice? The more foundational question that they're asking, the more fundamental question underneath the question is this. Can there be any relationship between Christianity and the pro-choice position? Can there be any relationship? Can those two coexist? That's really the deeper question. And the answer to that question is no, absolutely not. For what fellowship can light have with darkness, right? As scripture says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Or as Jesus says in Matthew, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, neither does a bad tree bear good fruit. Now, I haven't actually given a reason as to why there can be no relationship or unity between Christianity and the pro-abortion position. We'll get to that shortly. But believe it or not, plenty of identifying Christians and Christian leaders will answer yes to that question. They'll see no contradiction between their Christian worldview, their Christianity, what they espouse and maybe even teach if they're a pastor, and the pro-abortion position. And I encountered this 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 belief that that those two can coexist just perfectly fine for the first time in college as a naive 19-year-old, 18-year-old heading off to college, raised in a Christian home. I just assumed that being pro being a Christian meant being pro-life, that no one would attempt to mesh those two. My gosh. Well, I was uh you know, I was proven wrong very quickly, unfortunately. And my my college, if you've heard me talk about it before, is Westmont College. That's my alma mater. That's where I went in Santa Barbara, California. And if you're a parent who maybe feels that you haven't done the best job raising and equipping your children in truth and that they haven't fully embraced Christianity for themselves, they're not fully convinced, don't send your kid to Westmont College, okay? <laughs> Westmont has become um, – has fallen far from the premises and theological principles that it was built on. And I know this because I, I, I went there and I speak to people who go there now. And Westmont has not taken the type of position of leadership that we need Christian leaders to take at this moment. Let me tell you what I mean by that. This gets to this question of how many Christian leaders and lay people are leading young people and Christians – down a dark and dangerous path away from scripture, away from the orthodox position of the church into lies that you can somehow combine the Imago Dei with the right to kill babies in the womb. So I'm actually going to name these professors and maybe that's inappropriate, but I think you should know the names of, of people who are shaping the minds of, of children your age or of, of yourself if you're in college right now, who espouse Christ, who say they're born again and yet are perfectly fine accepting the premise that you can accept or defend the right to kill babies in the womb and be a born-again Christian and a leader who helps shape the minds of the next generation. So I don't know if uh, – I know that one or two of these people are still at Westmont. I don't know if all of them are. But Mary Doctor, a professor at Westmont College while I was there because I was the president of the pro-life club there, we had an email interaction and she said this. She said, Seth, please be aware that there are many committed Christians who are passionately pro-choice for a range of reasons. I won't go into them now, but I would hate to see you equate being pro-choice with a lack of true Christian faith or commitment. There is room for honest Christian dialogue on both sides of this complex issue. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's what I'll do the rest of my life is equate 
being pro-choice with a lack of true Christian faith or commitment. <laughs> you can't be truly faithful and committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and passionately pro-choice, right? She literally says that. Committed Christians who are passionately pro-choice. In the same email, she said, what constitutes the commencement of life of a human being and killing are things that thoughtful Christians ponder, investigate, and pray about on a regular basis. <laughs> if you have to take significant time to think about, pray about, and ponder whether humans are humans, babies are babies, and killing baby humans is wrong, then yes, I'm going to question your Christian faith or commitment. But this is coming from a from professors at Christian colleges. By the way, my alma mater's... Uh, uh, phrase or under on, on their uh, their signa uh, emblem of the college is Christ preeminent in all things. Christ preeminent in all things. So what Christ says and his words that he divinely ins inspired in scripture ought to formulate the way that we think about things. Except apparently not the prenatal Christ. The prenatal Christ could have been aborted because you can be passionately pro-choice for a range of reasons and be, a, and be committed to Christianity. Scott Anderson at Westmont College in an email correspondence with myself referenced the faculty advisor uh, of my pro-life club who, who will remain nameless. And he said, I received an email from your faculty advisor of the pro-life club asking if I was interested in signing a petition asking the board of trustees to add some kind of pro-life declaration to our campus life statement because Westmont College refuses to take a pro-life position on abortion. And I know that because the president of the college looked me in the face and said they're not going to do it. After giving it much thought, I declined and told your faculty advisor that while I remain staunchly pro-life, okay, I don't understand how it's relevant to the educational mission of the college to lay out an institutional stance on an issue that is not directly related to our academic mission. If we were to do this, then why not include a statement on environmental stewardship or gun control or any other host of issues? Why should we stop with the pro-life issue? And does it make sense to have the college make a statement on such an issue where there is disagreement in our own ranks? <laughs> My goodness. And all these, fac the, uh, these faculty have to sign a statement of faith to teach at Westmont College. He says that he's staunchly pro-life but that it's just not relevant to the educational mission of a college, right? So the, again, these are examples of people who believe that you can, you can passionately espouse Christianity and also accept or maybe even encourage those within that institution, be that the church or an academic institution that espouse Christianity, to also espouse removing the limbs of unborn children in their mother's wombs. And of course, I mean, this guy's moral compass is completely broken, right? He's saying if we do that, if we as a pro-life, if we have a Christian college whose motto is Christ preeminent in all things, take a position on abortion, maybe we'll have to do that on environmental standards or gun control. Right, Scott, right. Because slaughtering a million babies in America every year is definitely the same as law-abiding Americans practicing their, their constitutional right to defend themselves or it's the same as trying to keep the cows from farting to prevent global warming. My goodness. But this is becoming increasingly common amongst many Christian ranks in America that don't view abortion as all that bad. And then Deborah Dunn, uh, a professor at Westmont College, we were also in an email correspondence, and I responded to her email to the entire student body or maybe the communication studies department, advertising an internship with a local pro-abortion politician. So a Christian college 
who says Christ preeminent in all things, which would have to include the prenatal Christ in the womb, are advertising internship opportunities to their student body with local pro-abortion politicians. I'm not saying someone who's like pro-choice in their personal life but doesn't push it on a policy standpoint. No, this politician uh, has defended and promoted abortion politically her entire political career. And she said in this email to me after I called her out for how horrifically inappropriate this was, she said, it might surprise you to learn that many thoughtful, faithful, and inspiring Christians have ideas that differ from yours on these topics. Thoughtful, faithful, and inspiring Christians also saying, yeah, kill babies in the womb. That's wonderful. And so if Roe versus Wade, which apparently is a good thing because you can be passionately pro-choice for a range of reason, was applied in the first century, then Jesus probably would have been aborted if it weren't for the sovereignty of Christ because Mary was maybe 15 years old, unmarried, with a fiance threatening to leave her and no financial stability, checking all the perfect leftist check boxes for the right to get an abortion. So in short, these perspectives or these, these case studies, which really represent a larger problem in American Christianity, these perspectives can be summarized to basically say that, you know, Christianity is a big tent. It's a big tent and there's room for all of us. There's room for people who believe that it's okay to kill human babies. Now, essentially, of course, these same people wouldn't say there's room for people who think it's okay to discriminate against people based off of their skin color or lynch them, right? That's the irony of this whole thing, right? It's called the abortion distortion, uh, a, a phrase that was uh, initially used by Joseph Delapena in his book on the history of abortion, the abortion distortion, which is as soon as the topic becomes abortion, all moral reasoning goes out the window that otherwise would be applied to to other moral questions like Racial bigotry or like slavery. So we know that Westmont College and these other Christian institutions and churches and leaders would never accept the premise that Christianity is a big tent. There's room for all of us. There's room for the racists. There's room for KKK members. And they can actually passionately be pro-racist um, and, and also be a faithful, committed Christian as my fellow uh, pr uh, former Westmont uh, faculty here used to say, right? So, but that's the perspective. Christianity is a big tent. There's room for all of us. So yeah, you can be Christian and pro-choice and, and not just temporarily such that you would need to abandon that position eventually, but forever. It's fine. It's totally chill. So why are these two incompatible? That's what we're going to look at next, right? And, and, and furthermore, what arguments are offered by these wolves in sheep's clothing to defend the compatibility, the unity of Christianity with slaughtering babies in the womb. And that's what we're going to get to next. We're going to examine the theological case for abortion rights from a Christian perspective, lay people and leaders, and basically wolves in sheep's clothing. And we will refute, destroy these arguments and explain why these people should be excommunicated. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the pro-life movement and the abortion wars and the battle over human equality, consider becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com forward slash unaborted. We have some new perks and tiers there for people who give on a monthly basis to support the show. And you'll get access to Patreon-only content and other perks as well that will just be fun for you to either interact with me or get content to help you defend life. And we really need your help at this at this moment. So many of my speaking events have been canceled. Uh, ones that are getting are booked are, are, are tentatively, they might get canceled, obviously, because of COVID and this crazy government shutdown. And so uh, we need your help to be able to uh, utilize this moment and uh, this difficult time to be able to continue reaching people just online as we can't do so many in-person events. So consider becoming a patron of the show, patreon.com forward slash unaborted. It means so much to us. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Oh, 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 
Welcome back to the show. So we've answered this question, right? Can a Christian be pro-choice? Yes, temporarily, but they need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, just like all of us abandoning lifestyles, decisions, people, and opinions and ideas as we are discipled in the way of Christ. So yes, a Christian can be pro-choice temporarily, but unfortunately, there's a large and unfortunately growing number of people in the country who espouse Christianity, who believe they're born again. Some of these people are leaders, pastors even, who defend the proposition that you can be a born-again Christian and, as one of my former faculty people at Westmont said, actually passionately pro-choice for a range of reasons because Christianity is a big tent, okay? So can a Christian be pro-choice? We've answered that question, but now we need to answer the question, why do some people think that they can and what are the arguments offered, the theological case for abortion rights? So we're going we're gonna to kind of cruise through some of these. And the first one we're going to look at is the most popular. This is probably the one that you hear the most from either Christians who are defending abortion or from atheists who tell Christians who are pro-life to shut up. Because why? Because the Bible doesn't address abortion. That's, that's their first argument, right? The Bible is silent on abortion. Jesus was silent on abortion. So... These people's perspective can be summarized as follows. We should speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. And scripture has nothing to say on abortion. So either the Bible is neutral on abortion, which means, come on, it's a big tent Christianity. If you're pro-choice, pro-life, come on, because the Bible's neutral on abortion. Or that the Bible gives tacit permission to abort. So either the Bible is like tacitly sort of silently pro-choice or it's just neutral. That's their perspective. That's the argument. Silence equals neutrality or permission. Now, before we get into this argument and we're going to debunk it quite thoroughly for you, we're going to we're going to run a quick test of authenticity. Right. And I do this with the left all the time. I ask them if they consistently apply their premises and beliefs consistently in all scenarios, and typically they don't, because leftism typically utilizes political cultural moments or individuals as a cudgel to beat the, over the heads of conservatives, right? And we see this with cancel culture. It's, it's, it's very selective in who they call canceling, right? No cancellations for Margaret Sanger, no cancellations for Joe Biden saying, if you can't figure out if you're for me or Trump, you ain't black, right? Or saying recently that uh, unlike the black community, the Hispanic community is very diverse, right? There's no, can no calling for cancellations like that. This is, this is a, sort of a general truth of the left, that they don't consistently apply their ideas. They just use them as political cudgels. Well, the same thing is true here. Do they consistently apply the rule that where the Bible is silent, they should be too? Do they consistently apply their rule here that whatever scripture doesn't condemn, it must condone, that's their argument, right? The Bible doesn't condemn abortion, so it, it condones it. It's okay with it, or it's just neutral on it. So let's look at some examples to see if these pro-choice pastors, Christians, leaders are authentic and if they consistently apply this rule. Should we remain neutral on forced female circumcision as scripture doesn't mention it? Scripture has nothing to say about that, right? So according to your standard, it's either neutral on forcibly circumcising women or it condones it. How about, here, how about this one? Are we forbidden to have a position on nuclear warfare because the Bible doesn't address the atom bomb? Yeah, something tells me that the woke progressive pacifists are going to have a problem with that because they're not concerned about being consistent in this ludicrous position that whatever the Bible is silent on, it, it, that you can't reach a position on it or that the Bible's neutral on that. 
How about this one? Should we shrug at the lynching of homosexuals because the Bible doesn't condemn such behavior? Some some uh, Muslims still do that in some Muslim countries. It's chill, right? Because the Bible doesn't take a position on it. Doesn't, it doesn't condemn that behavior. Ridiculous. And can we develop any opinions on any modern advances in science, such as cloning or genetically engineered babies, if scripture doesn't prohibit such practices? Of course not, you see. The woke progressive Christian will at this point insist that no, 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 we can. We can develop biblically sound positions on such issues. Of course they'll believe that. Of course they'll think that Christianity would be opposed to some of the things I just mentioned. And they're probably going to defend that belief by saying, well, Scripture teaches certain premises, it teaches certain behaviors, it teaches certain foundational truths that we can utilize to develop biblically sound positions on the issues you just mentioned, but which scripture are silent on. (laughs) And they'll probably point firstly to the Imago Dei, right? They're going to point to the fact that human beings are created in the image of God with intrinsic dignity and value. And so because human beings are made in the image of God and have intrinsic dignity, the Bible strictly forbids the assault on innocent human beings, or the shedding of innocent blood of innocent human beings. And they might even make the point that such behavior is actually an assault on God himself because he's the creator of those human beings who bear his image. And so you're actually disrespecting God himself when you mistreat innocent human beings in such a manner. (laughs) That's probably how they'll defend their belief that we can reach biblically sound positions on these other issues that I just mentioned, even though scripture is silent on them. At which point I respond, that's right. Good job. Exactly. Which means the Bible does provide the theological and philosophical foundation necessary to reach truly Christian positions on a variety of topics, even if those topics are not addressed specifically in the Bible. (laughs) So the question becomes, as it pertains to abortion, the question rather is not, does the Bible expressly condemn abortion? Instead, the question is, are the unborn human? And does scripture teach that the unborn are human? Because if the unborn are human and this, you know, woke progressive Christian just made the argument that because human beings are created in the image of God, they deserve to be treated with intrinsic dignity, value and worth. Then the unborn would have to be included in that class of humans who have to be treated with intrinsic intrinsic dignity because they bear the image of God. Right. Do you see what I mean? How selective Their rule is here that where scripture is silent, we should be too, or whatever the the Bible doesn't condemn, it condones. So let's look at how the Bible treats the unborn. Obviously, we know what the science of embryology teaches. If you've been listening to this podcast for at least two or three episodes, you've heard me passionately defend the uncontroversial science of embryology. But does the Bible also teach that the unborn are human being? Yes, it does. And we're going to look at some verses right here. So Luke 1.15 says, regarding John the Baptist, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Okay, treating the unborn as a human. Luke 1.41, also regarding John the Baptist, and this is when Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, walks into the room where Mary is pregnant with the prenatal Christ, the creator of Mary and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And as you'll recall, John the Baptist leaps in the womb, which means that the first person to recognize Christ was an unborn child. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 1.5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. 
Again, it's talking about the unborn as a human. Isaiah 49.1 says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Psalm 51.5, David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I wasn't aware of the fact that uh, human tissue could be sinful. Psalm 22.10 says, From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. And then, of course, the beautiful and popular Psalm 139, right? For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together in the secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, right? Beautifully describing the beauty of the womb in which God knits us together. And Galatians 1.15 says, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So this is straightforward, guys. I mean, unfortunately, our, our Christian brothers and sisters, and again, the jury's out whether they are, truly are Christian, are going to continue defending this premise that, yes, a Christian can be pro-choice and passionately so. It's totally chill. They are blatantly ignoring the parts of scripture that they don't like because it doesn't fit into the secular ideology that they're trying to syncretize with scripture, that they're trying to shove into the Bible. (laughs) And of course, they're blatantly ignoring the science of embryology, which teaches that babies are babies. Babies are humans and therefore would have to be included in the class of humans that the Bible says are created in the image of God, which are, of course, all humans. So the Bible's treatment of the unborn as a human being, coupled with the uncontested science of embryology, affirming that human life begins at the moment of conception, means that the prohibitions against the shedding of innocent blood in Scripture would apply equally to the unborn as well because they are human beings. Now, the pro-abortion Christian may at this point insist that if the Bible so exhaustively refers to the unborn as a human being, surely there would be prohibitions against abortion, right? They're going to they're gonna say that if, if, if this is such an exhaustive truth in scripture, that the unborn is a human, surely the Bible would have condemned abortion. So because it doesn't, maybe it's okay with it, right? Maybe they won't they won't accept the premise that we've already debunked, that whatever the Bible doesn't condemn, it condones. But instead, they might argue that, well, the silence of Scripture on abortion lends strongly to the belief that it must not have been that important to Jesus and the early church, right? So, you know, maybe they won't fully accept that because it's silent, it, it condones it, but that the overwhelming silence in Scripture on abortion does help support the belief that it wasn't all that important. So maybe that's the avenue that they're going to take next, okay? So in other words, they will read their pro-choice position into the silence of Scripture and just assume that God and early Christians view the unborn child just like they do, (laughs) just like they do, which is cellularly human, right, with human DNA, just like my skin cells, but not a person, surely not a person, right? That's how they're going to treat the silence of Scripture. So that leads us to this question. Why is scripture silent on abortion? That's the next question we need to go to. Why is scripture silent on abortion? We've illustrated that the silence of scripture in no way supports the proposition that the Bible is neutral on abortion or that it 
condones abortion, but why is scripture so silent on abortion? And we're going to get to that next. But first, I have an exciting announcement. My university speaking tour this school year, assuming I can book universities, uh, I may have to leave California because of the governor here, is entitled The Myth of the Pro-Choice Feminist. We're going to examine the history of the women's movement and the sexual revolution, and we're going to discover how these two movements got in bed with each other and the damage that their infidelity wrought on women, families, and preborn children. So if you want to consider bringing me to your campus, maybe we'll do a tabling event if we can't do a, uh, a full-scale event because of these uh, you know, shutdowns, which basically are not dangerous at all to people under 21. But be that as it may, if you want to bring me to your university campus in the fall or spring, email me at seth at sethgruber.com, seth at sethgruber.com for this speaking to her, the myth of the pro-choice feminist, one that's surely to enrage the uh, the fake feminists on your campus who are pro-choice, and hopefully we can engage them in thoughtful dialogue. You can also contact me through social media, and let's get this tour to your school. We'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to the show. So let's move on to this question. Why is the Bible so silent on abortion? It's true. The Bible doesn't mention the word abortion. And so in turn, pro-choice activists and advocates who oftentimes espouse Christianity as well use the silence of scripture to suggest that, yeah, you can be pro-choice and Christian. So why is the Bible silent on abortion? The short answer to this question is that the prohibitions against abortion were largely unnecessary in biblical times. There was no reason why early church fathers and the authors of scripture would need to condemn abortion because nobody that they were writing to and amongst the early church would have thought that that was okay or a viable solution to a child who is already in their womb. So why is this? There's a, there's three reasons, really. There's a few th- big three reasons as to why early church fathers and the authors of scripture wouldn't have even needed to say, by the way, guys, don't kill babies in the womb. Don't kill your own children, right? It, it would be like, it would be like us having to condemn the Holocaust today. By the way, guys, don't kill Jews, right? Nobody thinks that that's okay, <laughs> And so there's not really a cultural need or an ideological need to condemn such behavior, right? The same would have been true during biblical times. The first reason for this is that children were never viewed as unwanted, but they were viewed as the highest possible blessing, a, a belief that is, is sadly lacking today in our culture, even, even in amongst the church, right? With the increased use of contraception and of even surgical procedures to make sure that we don't have any more children, you know, us dictating to God how many children we're going to have. Children were never viewed as unwanted, but always as a blessing in biblical times. Psalm 127, 3 says, right, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when they when he contends with his opponents in court, right? Psalm 113, 9 says, he settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children, praise the Lord, right? Not a belief too strongly shared by, uh, by unfortunately, many Christian feminists today. And then Genesis 33, 5 says, then Esau looked up and saw the women and children of Jacob's. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. 
By the way, Jacob had 13 children, <laughs> okay? And the way that he and others talk about children is always as a blessing, as wanting more, as a heritage from the Lord, as a gift, never as a burden, never as unwanted, right? So early Christians wouldn't have even considered pursuing an abortion. The second reason why the prohibitions against abortion were basically unnecessary in biblical times is that barrenness, right, or sterility were seen as a curse and a cause of great shame and sorrow during biblical times, right? And we know this from scripture, Genesis 30, um, it talks about, right, Rachel, right? And it says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. <laughs> give me children or I'll die. If only uh, feminists today were as eager to have children as, as, uh, as, as those in biblical times. Genesis 30, 22 says, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. <laughs> God has taken away my disgrace. The perspective is that it was, she felt that it was disgraceful that she wasn't able to have a child. So, so barrenness was viewed as a cause of great shame and sorrow. And then you may remember in 1 Samuel, Peninnah ridicules Hannah before Hannah has the prophet Samuel because of her barrenness. She ridicules her for being barren and not being able to reproduce. So these are the first two reasons. Children were never viewed as unwanted, but always as a blessing. Barrenness and sterility were seen as a curse and a cause of great shame. And thirdly, immortality was actually viewed as possible as achieved through one's descendants, right? That, that you could continue to live on through your children and your children's children. That's why God's promise to Abraham to make of him a great nation was so huge, was so important, was such a blessing. And that promise, of course, was passed on through the generations to Isaac and to Jacob. So given all of these factors, the thought of even entertaining abortion, much less needing to forbid it, would have been utterly unthinkable to first century Christians. So that is why the prohibition, or that is why rather why prohibiting abortion wouldn't have even been viewed as necessary or important in biblical times. So while the scriptures are silent on the word abortion, there was a strong anti-abortion consensus among first century Jews. And Michael Gorman, a theologian and author who's written extensively on church history, wrote a 1996 Christianity Today article entitled, Why is the New Testament Silent About Abortion? A phenomenal article. And basically, he goes through Jewish documents from that period that did condemn the practice of abortion unequivocally. And, and it ends up finding out that he actually couldn't find any contradictory texts in early church documents and Jewish documents that that were condoning the practice of abortion, right? So I, I want to go through some of these, right? So he, he reports on these in his article. Um, the sentences of pseudo Pseudophoclitus, uh, written between 50 BC and AD 50, says, quote, a woman should not destroy the unborn babe in her belly, nor after its birth, throw it before the dogs and vultures. The sibling oracles includes among the wicked... Those who, quote, produce abortions and unlawfully cast their offspring away. And it also and also condemns sorcerers who dispense abortifacients, right, to cause an early 
abortion. First Enoch, written uh, 1st or 2nd century BC, says that an evil angel taught humans how to, quote, smash the embryo in the womb, right, alluding to the satanic nature of abortion. Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish philosopher uh, who lived 25 BC to 8041, rejected the notion that the fetus is merely part of the mother's body, acknowledging that it is a distinct, unique individual. And then Josephus, right, the very famous first century Jewish historian, wrote, quote, the law orders all the offspring be brought up and forbids women either to cause abortion or to make away with the fetus. That's what he says. A woman who did so was considered to have committed infanticide because she destroyed what he calls a soul and hence diminished the race actually referring to the child as a unique, separate individual with a human soul. And in all of his research, Michael Gorman found no contradictory text existing in early Jewish documents that would either espouse neutrality on abortion or condone the practice. So the most logical conclusion is this, that Jewish Christian authors of the New Testament shared the anti-abortion views of their Jewish heritage because these would have been the early, these would have been the documents that they would have looked to to speak to the question of abortion. And for all of the other reasons, of course, that I just went through, abortion wouldn't have even been seen as a as a rational or logical option. Gorman also highlights early Christian writings, right? So right after after the ascension of Christ. And and while these were not included in the Bible, right, that we read, they didn't pass the, the test of canonicity, they were preached in many congregations throughout the Roman Empire until the fourth century. So these early Christian documents would have built the spiritual and moral understanding of abortion amongst early Christians. The Didache, quoting, says, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor shall you kill a newborn. The epistle of Barnabas says, quote, you shall love your neighbor more than your own life. You shall not murder a child by abortion, nor shall you kill a newborn. And the apocalypse of Peter, in a description of, describing a vision of hell says, quote, I saw women who produced children out of wedlock and who procured abortions in a vision describing hell. Okay. So you have universal consensus amongst uh, early Jewish documents condemning abortion. And you have early Christian writings that would have been read aloud in congregations through the fourth century condemning abortion as well. So do I need to go on? The consensus has been reached, right? That there is no neutrality on abortion, either in scripture or in the early church, and certainly not any, any type of condoning of abortion. So given all of that, it is quite silly to believe that the Bible or the church was somehow friendly towards or neutral on abortion. There's simply no case to be made that you can you can dwell within the Orthodox Christian position while also passionately defending or accepting the pro-choice position. So that's, that's uh, so hopefully we've thoroughly debunked that. Now, there's one other argument I want to look at, or actually two more, but one I want to go through really quick. And I, I wondered whether I should even include this because it's so ridiculous, but it, it actually is popular. I've actually heard it a lot. And so um, I want to give you kind of how to respond to that in case, in case you've heard it as well. The, the second type of argument that is utilized by these, you know, quote unquote, pro-choice Christians to defend abortion within their Christian tradition is to say this, God gave us free will. God gave us free will. That's important to him. So laws that restrict our free will must also go against God's will, right? 
So the case being made is that laws that restrict you getting an abortion, your free will to get an abortion, must obviously be against God's will <laughs> because he wants you to have free will, even if you use that to kill little humans. So that's their argument. Now, of course, the first thing we can do is, is again, the sort of the test of authenticity and just apply this in any other moral context. For example, do laws that restrict the freedom of men to rape women go against God's will? Do laws that restrict men from beating their wives go against God's will? Do laws that restrict individuals from raping and murdering children go against God's will? How dare you restrict their free will, <laughs> right? It's so ludicrous. Once again, this is the abortion distortion. All moral reasoning goes out the window when the word abortion is said. Nobody can think logically because if the unborn is a human being and if the Christian is espousing this argument, then they must believe that human beings are created in the image of God, which would mean the unborn as well. So, of course, we're justified in restricting free will when the practice of that free will injures or intentionally murders image bearers of God. So this argument begs the question and assumes that the unborn is not a full human like the rest of us. Now, here we go. We are now going to debunk the number one biblical argument that is used in defense of the pro-choice position. And this one is a favorite of atheist pro-choicers to throw it in the face of Christians and of, of Christian pro-choicers as well. And this is sort of the pro-choice Bible verse or, or pro-choice Bible section that if you read it on the face of it without any type of, of hermeneutical lens, without any type of proper exegesis, you might come away with the position that abortion is not a big deal. Um, but not once we dig into the context, dig into the Hebrew, and, and look at our test of authenticity once again. So this verse is used by wolves in sheep's clothing to argue for the pro-choice position. They don't just argue that the Bible is neutral on abortion. They actually use this verse to argue that the Bible is okay with. It, it, it doesn't, it actually thinks abortion can be okay. So that is Exodus 21, 22 through 25. And it talks about a man who uh, unintentionally injures a pregnant woman that causes her to give birth earlier to have a miscarriage. So here's what it says. It says, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you were to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Okay, so the woke Christian argues that this scripture proves that the unborn are not fully human because the penalty for accidentally killing a fetus is less than that for killing its mother. So if you, if you accidentally kill the fetus, the penalty is less than if you accidentally kill the mother. So they're going to say that, well, look, why would the penalty be less for killing a fetus if the fetus was equally valuable to the, to the mother? So because of the discrepancy in the punishment, the Bible is saying that born women have more value or personhood or right to life than their preborn children. Now, I'm going to show you actually that I don't even think this is the right interpretation, but even if it is we're going to find that this argument or this, this section of scripture does not support abortion, even if that interpretation is correct. So what's wrong with this argument? The first is that even if this interpretation is correct, right, granting their interpretation, it doesn't follow or prove that the unborn are not fully human. What do I mean by that? The passage directly before this section in Exodus 21 
presents a situation where a master is not required to be punished if he beats his slave with a rod, but the slave recovers in a day or two. So would the same pro-choice Christian argue that the slave is not fully human because there's no penalty for beating him? Oh, oh, the penalty is less or there's no penalty for beating the slave. Oh, a discrepancy in punishments. That must mean that the slave is not a human and we can kill them, right? Of course not. They're not going to defend that the Bible is somehow okay with beating people. So, of course, but of course, they're willing to say that because it's a lesser punishment for accidentally killing a fetus, that the fetus must not be a human so we can abort them, right? So they're not consistently even applying that standard. And that's assuming that the interpretation of this text is correct, which I'm going to get to in a little bit that I don't think it is. The second thing that's wrong with this argument is that, again, even if this interpretation is correct, it cannot be used to support the pro-choice position, which is abortion on demand. Abortion for any reason or no reason at all, procured by the mother through all nine months of pregnancy. Scott Klusendorf correctly says regarding this argument, he says, this passage in Exodus, however, does not even remotely suggest that a woman can willfully kill her unborn child without justification. At best, it only shows that there is a lesser penalty for accidentally killing her unborn offspring than there is for accidentally killing her. Even if the interpretation is correct, right? Scott accurately points out that that doesn't defend the pro-choice position, which is abortion on demand, secured by the mother who helps arrange the death of her child for any reason or no reason at all. So those are the first two problems with using Exodus 21 saying that there's a less punishment for killing a fetus than the mother, so therefore the fetus must not be a human with rights. And that's assuming that the interpretation is correct. Here's the third problem with this argument, and it does have to do with the interpretation of the passage. There is very good reason to believe that the pro-abortion interpretation of this passage is deeply flawed. Because the key question in interpreting this passage in Exodus 21 is to ask, no serious injury to whom? No serious injury to whom? Who are we talking about? Because you remember the passage says if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined, right, etc. But no serious injury to whom? Who are we talking about? The pro-abortion Christian, of course, is going to argue that the phrase no serious injury only applies to the mother, only applies to the mother. But the text is not clear in saying that it's only referring to injury obtained by the mother. But if you render the passage this way, then the passage comes to mean that if you accidentally kill an unborn child and there is no serious injury to the mother, you only have to pay a fine. But if there is serious injury to the mother, you must pay life for life. In other words, kill an unborn baby, pay a fine. Kill the mother, you'll be killed too. That's how they're interpreting the passage. But only a few translations interpret the verse in this way. So what's the Hebrew say? Well, the Hebrew term asan, which means harm or injury, is indefinite in its reference, meaning we're not sure who it's referring to, who the injury is referring to. And then the Hebrew term or expression rather, la, L-A-H, which means to her, which would identify the word injury to the mother is missing. That expression to her is missing. If it was there, then you could say, injury to her, but it's missing. So the phrase, no serious injury, seems to actually apply to both the mother and the child, meaning that if either one of them is harmed, then the penalty is life for life, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, etc., right? 
And according to Hebrew scholar, Dr. Gleason Archer, he says regarding this passage, quote, there is no second class status attached to the fetus under this rule. The fetus is just as valuable as the mother. So it seems entirely reasonable and appropriate in interpreting this passage to actually come away with a a very pro-life perspective that values the life of the mother and the fetus equally. Now, Greg Kokel, president of Standard Reason, makes this excellent observation regarding this passage as well. He asks the question, why should we presume that the miscarriage in Exodus 21 produces a dead child? He, He points out that the Hebrew word for miscarriage in this context is yasa, Y-A-S-A, which almost always refers to the emergence of a living thing. So a very different uh, understanding of the word miscarriage as used in the Hebrew. So in that case, the passage could be translated to say this, right? If we take all of this interpretation, here's what, here's how we could correctly interpret the passage. I'm going to reread it with, with this understanding of the interpretation. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely to an alive child, but there is no serious injury to the child or the mother, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury to the child or the mother, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So when we actually exegete this passage correctly, we're actually given an incredibly pro-life perspective, the complete opposite of what the pro-choice woke Christian who is defending the slaughter of image bearers while espousing Christ wants you to come away with, okay? So those are the main ways that pro-choice Christians argue that the Bible is either neutral on abortion, so do whatever you want, and there's room for people who defend killing children in the church and give them leadership positions, or that the Bible actually condones abortion. So why are so many identifying Christians and Christian leaders pro-choice? Why are we seeing this, this trend now? And, and, and in some uh, congregations and, and in some church circles, some entire denominations have gone to affirm abortion, which at that point, I'm just going to point out, you're not even the church. You're, you're literally just serving Satan now. You are not serving the risen again Christ. But of course, they're still identifying with Orthodox Christianity and then trying to defend a satanic position that not all image bearers of God have value and should have their lives protected. They want the label of Christianity and the lifestyle of a pagan right? So they simply attempt to blend the two, to syncretize the two. But scripture warns us about this. 2 Timothy 4, 3 says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And we went through a lot of that sound teaching regarding how the Bible refers to the unborn as human, right? 2 Timothy continues and says, but they will have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, right? So you're just going to go to someone who confirms your biases. You're going to go to someone who will, who will gently whisper you down the doorway of death by suggesting that we can kill little human beings created in the image of God. These wolves in sheep's clothing are intentionally attacking the very institution they claim to serve, Christ church. So they're not actually of us, right? Scripture talks about those that went out from us were never of us. They have, they have abandoned any sense of servitude to the true and risen Christ who himself came as an unborn child and are now acting as baits of Satan, defending one of the most satanic positions you could possibly imagine, the slaughter of babies. And if 
you are a Christian and you study scripture, you know that Satan loves killing babies. The dragon in Revelation is representative of Satan, and it says that he stood waiting for the woman to give birth so he could devour her child. Satan was behind Pharaoh's rule to murder all of the Hebrew babies in Egypt. And Satan was behind Herod's rule to kill all of the babies under two as he was trying to target Christ. There's a long history of killing babies and Satan and the worshipers of that false God. So these people are not of us and they have left any semblance of Christianity by accepting and defending the synthesis of Christianity which came in the name of a prenatal unborn child and combining that belief with the premise that you can actually slaughter those same image bearers made in the image of that prenatal Christ in their mother's womb because that's somehow just or compatible with Christianity. Referring to the enemies of the gospel, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, for such people are false prophets, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And he goes on to say, and this makes sense. He says, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. This is heavy language. Paul here in 2 Corinthians is explicitly saying that no wonder these people act like they do. Because Satan masquerades as an angel of light, and so his servants will do so as well. His servants will masquerade as servants of righteousness. I think it is entirely appropriate to say that pro-choice Christian leaders, pastors, who claim that there's a synthesis between Christianity and butchering babies are servants of Satan. They are masquerading as servants of righteousness, and no wonder for the father that they serve masquerades as an angel of light while devouring children and infecting the church. Greg Cunningham once said that Satan would kill God if he could, but he can't, so he kills babies because he knows it wounds the heart of God and hurts the church. Indeed. We need to expel these people from Christianity. They should be excommunicated and treated as pagans for leading Christians away down a door of death towards a satanic position and worldview that historically has always been used to arrange the slaughter of babies. They're masquerading as servants of righteousness. We know what they really are, and they should be excommunicated by any church that takes Christ, the gospel, and orthodoxy seriously. So I hope that's been a helpful episode. I hope that's helped you answer the question, can a Christian be pro-choice? Can there be any relationship between Christianity and the pro-choice position? And what arguments are offered theologically to defend abortion rights? And we have thoroughly debunked those, bankrupt those, and excommunicated. It's time to cancel pro-abortion Christian leaders. Well, that's all we have time for, for today. Thanks for joining me. Head on over to iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. Give the show a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. Share it with a friend. Or maybe you have someone in your life who says they're a Christian and they're pro-choice. Listen to this episode and then grab coffee and talk to him about it. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to my website, sethgruber.com for training videos, my speaking schedule to subscribe to my newsletter or to ask any questions. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Unaborted.